Men, well, good morning, First Baptist Owasso. It is great to be here today. I've been informed that this is Super Bowl Sunday. <clears throat> and so beware, I'm, I'm, I know that the game is today. It technically means that I have until 5.20, though, because the game started at 5.30, so that'll be fun. Man, I'm, I'm really glad to be with you guys. Chris, thanks for inviting me. It's been so good to get to know Chris and Robin a lot better since we've been here and, and this amazing church body here at First Baptist at Owasso. My name is Jacob um, Boss. My wife, Elizabeth, is down here, and we have four kiddos. Sky is uh, 16, and Andrew is 12, Philip is 9, and Sadie is 6. So we're in the throes of it. Uh, we have had the privilege of serving the Lord uh, cross-culturally for around 15 years. We were in South Asia uh, for around 10 years, and then we've been in London, England for the last five and a half years. And for the last three and a half, four years, we've been leading the work uh, across Europe. So from Russia to the UK, Canada, and Australia, a uh, few things happening in Europe these days. Uh, and the, the striking thing about Europe to Lisbon, we didn't know a whole lot before we moved there, is just the amount of lostness that is present in Europe. Uh, and so do continue to pray for, for Europe as you think about us and the work there. Uh, but that's a little bit about my family and just really excited to be with you guys to share the word I want to pray uh, again before we, uh, before we get, get started here. Father, 1 Corinthians 2, we see that your spirit has searched your very depths. And for those in this room that have put their faith in you, God, you've given us the gift of your spirit. We literally have your spirit that has searched your very depths within us this morning. Lord, as we were thinking about passages just a second ago, Psalm 85. So as your spirit works in us this morning, would you restore us again, O God of our salvation? Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Lord, this is our cry this morning. Would you do a work amongst us as we see even your body gathering in the New Testament that we can continue to impact the nations around us? Lead us and guide us, encourage us, challenge us, exhort us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things that I love about the Bible is that it is real. And it doesn't whitewash anything. With all the news and social media narratives, and I know my generation, I'm uh, 1982, so like kind of millennial, kind of not millennial. I'm just confused, basically. But with, with all of the narratives and with all of the news out there, there's this dynamic of like, all right, what is the, like, how are they trying to manipulate this narrative to get me to where they want me to be? 
Or, or how are they trying to make it look good or better so that I'll buy it or follow it or believe it? Now, here's the thing. The, the Bible doesn't whitewash anything. It's completely true. There, there's no earthly hero outside of Jesus Christ who is perfect that the Bible paints a great picture of. Because it doesn't have to, because we understand that it's perfectly true. And so therefore, God is able to be honest with us. And I know you guys have been reading through the Bible this year, for those of you that have joined into that. And if you haven't ever read through the Bible before, you're probably beginning to see, man, God's pretty real. There's some crazy stuff happening in his words, because he's not trying to hide anything from us. He wants us to know everything. And so the passage we're actually going to deal with this morning is Acts chapter 15. And it deals with something amongst two leaders of the early church, Paul and Barnabas. And it deals with conflict. So again, the Bible's not trying to hide anything. It's, it's bearing all to us. And this is one of the things that it shows us is that there actually is conflict amongst believers there's even conflict, conflict amongst Christian leaders. I know that's shocking to everyone here. But let, let's dive in and see what, what the Lord would have uh, for us this morning. Acts chapter 15, verse 36 to 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them or bailed on them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." Now, this conflict sits in a specific part of a timeline of the New Testament and even of the missionary journeys of Paul. So this conflict happens at the end of the first journey. So Paul was, was radically saved in Acts chapter 9. And then we know from Galatians 1 and 2, for about 14 years, he spent learning from the Lord, probably engaging in missions to some degree. And then Paul calls, I mean, Barnabas calls him to the church at Antioch. Paul and Barnabas then are sent out from Antioch onto the missionary journeys. And there are three distinct missionary journeys. And so they are through the first missionary journey here, and they're about to embark on the second missionary journey. And Paul, Paul's the one that has the idea to start this, this next part of the journey. And Barnabas is like, hey, let's take uh, John Mark with us. Paul's like, yeah, no, we're not. The dude bailed on us. Like, we can't trust him. The cares of the world pulled him away. Like, we're not doing that. And Barnum's like, no, no, we need, to, we need to take him. So there was a very sharp disagreement, and they ended up splitting ways. Barnabas goes with John Mark. Paul takes Silas. They actually both continued to go on mission, but there is this conflict that occurs. Now, in order, I think, to really understand this narrative here in, in Scripture, we need to, to zoom out and see the broader story that's taking place here. So there's three characters or three people in this story that I want us to zoom in on. And as we zoom in on them, you're going to realize 
that each, each of these people are very different. Now, probably out here in this congregation, definitely in the body of Christ, there are a lot of different people. But I think it'll be helpful for us to see these three people in this story and a little bit of their background and maybe some of the giftings and personality that they have. So the first one we're going to look at is Paul. Now, Paul had a healthy ambition to share the gospel with those who haven't heard. Now, we see this really in Romans chapter 15. And so Romans 15, Paul wrote at the end of the third journey. Okay, so he's gone through first, second, towards the end of his third journey, he writes Romans 15. In Romans 15, he's reflecting on a lot of what happened in the journeys, and he's making a case for why he's going to leave that part of the world and go to another part of the world to share the gospel. So in this passage, Romans 15, 17 to 21, he says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." So Paul was highly focused and very intense in this mission that God had called him to, to get the gospel to the people that have yet to get the gospel. And now this is part of Paul's personality even before he came to faith. Why was Paul so driven to get the gospel where the gospel had not gone? Well, first off, he was called by God to do this. He was given this directive by the Lord. So that, that's the driving factor. But I think also Paul understood what it was like to be lost. See, in Acts chapter 7, which I think you guys talked about last week and is a part of your Bible reading, in Acts chapter 7, we see this guy named Stephen. And Stephen was a servant of the church at Jerusalem. So the church in Jerusalem is started in Acts chapter 2, and day by day, 3,000 are added initially, day by day, more people than 5,000. They have a need to begin to organize. They, they choose seven servants to begin to take care of the widows. One of those servants was Stephen. And Stephen begins to, to get very bold with the gospel. And so in Acts chapter 7, one of the best gospel presentations there is in the word and probably has ever been spoken in the history is by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen boldly declares the gospel. Well, guess what? As we boldly declare the gospel, not everybody appreciates that. And so they capture Stephen, and they're brutally, brutally murdering him. He's becoming a martyr for Christ. And who is standing right before Stephen as this is happening? Saul who would become Paul. Now, if if anyone had the right to say, God, sick him. God, get him. He's judging your, he's, he's persecuting your church. And now they're brutally killing me. Judge him, get him. It would have been Stephen. But what was Stephen's response? Lord, Don't 
hold this against them. Now, I can't, I can't prove this from Scripture, but I believe that God honored Stephen's cry two chapters later in Acts 9. As Saul was on the road of Damascus, he was actually going to persecute the church. And Jesus broke in and radically saved him. See, Paul understood what it was like to be lost. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was literally persecuting the very body of Christ. Yet at the same time, he understood what it was like to be found. He understood what it was like to be in Jesus. I've been in church my whole life. Uh, I was in adult Sunday school in my mother's womb. I graduated to nursery when I was born. I don't even know how many sermons I've heard, how many times I've been in the church building. By God's grace, I was, saw myself lost in my sin and need for Jesus when I was seven, gave my life to him. I've been a believer for a long time. It's raising a great family that, number one, proclaimed the gospel to me, but number two, also showed me what it's like to live out the gospel. Like, the reality is I don't know what it's like to not have access to the gospel. Really, I, I can forget even what it was like to be lost because of the amazing privileges that I've experienced with the Lord for many years. Like, I can come every Sunday and listen to the Word of God preached at any time of the day, midnight, 2.30 in the morning, 3.30 in the morning, noon, 1.30 in the afternoon. It doesn't matter. I can pick up the Word of God and I can commune with the Creator of the universe, the Creator and Sustainer, the one who has all power and authority. Man, I can take all of those things for granted and I can... I can forget what it's like to be lost, and I also have no idea what it's like to not have access to the gospel. The reality is today there are over 2 billion people in the world who have yet to hear the name of Jesus. The greatest injustice of our day, because eternity is at stake. Two billion people that have yet to hear the name of Jesus. Multiply the population of America times four and then add a few. And you're about to the amount of people who have not heard the name of Jesus. Eight billion people in the world today who do not currently have access to the gospel. These were the people that Paul was so intent and ambitious at getting the gospel to. So that's a little bit of Paul's personality. Driven, he's going to get the gospel to them. So now we have Barnabas. Let's look at Barnabas a little bit. Barnabas' actual name is Joseph. Joseph was a generous believer who was given the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So we see Barnabas enter the biblical story in Acts 4, 32 through 37. So the gospel has begun to ring out in Jerusalem through Peter. The church has started. And this is the context of, of this passage here in Acts 4. Now, the full number of those who believed 
were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas' real name was Joseph. And Joseph was a fairly wealthy guy, and, and Joseph owned land. And there was this time of incredible unity of the early church where literally no one had need because they were, had all things in common. And Joseph was led by the Lord to sell this land and to give the money to the apostles for the advancement of the kingdom and for caring for the believers here. So Joseph was obviously a wealthy man. He was also a very generous man. And we know because of his nickname that he was also an encourager. Now we know that Barnabas also knew Paul very well. Now you can imagine if you were in the early church and Paul had been persecuting you brutally, and then all of a sudden you hear this story about how, no, 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 he got saved. He's one of us now. Like Most likely you would probably have a few questions. Right? Like, well, what if he was just tricking so that he could now come and persecute us? And so there was a lot of questioning of the early church about Paul and the genuineness of his conversion. But Barnabas comes to his defense in Acts 9. He's like, no, 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 guys, listen. Paul's conversion was real. I've seen him proclaim the gospel. I've even seen him face persecution and hardship because of the gospel. Like his conversion is genuine. So, so Barnabas even stands in the gap here for Paul in Acts chapter 9. We also know from Galatians 1 and 2 that Barnabas was a significant part of Paul's life when he was spending that 14 years before the missionary journeys in Acts. Barnabas was a significant part. We know that it was Barnabas that calls Paul to come to Antioch. And so Barnabas asks Paul, please come to Antioch and help me as I'm strengthening the church at Antioch. It was at that church that Paul and Barnabas would be sent out for the first missionary journey. So Barnabas has a significant role in Paul's life of even encouraging him as he is growing and maturing in the Lord. So this is Barnabas, right? Very generous, very caring and encouraging, and he's going to help restore people that have fallen. So maybe, maybe this morning you're like, oh, I kind of identify with Paul. Like, I'm kind of driven. And so maybe some of you are like, I kind of identify with Barnabas, a little bit more caring and, and pastoral. And then there's uh, John Mark. John Mark bailed on the work and went home. Now, where we see John Mark enter uh, the, the New Testament, uh, the, the word is actually um, in his mom's house. So you guys remember the story of Peter when Peter was in prison. So they put Peter in prison, and then there were believers gathered in a home, and they were praying. And they were praying that, that God would deliver Peter. So that home, if you, if you read it, is John Mark's mom's house. And most likely John Mark would have been there. John Mark at this time was most likely a teenager. Uh, Timothy also was a teenager, actually, as Paul would send out 
Timothy um, in, in Thessalonica. So John Mark was probably young. That was his mom's house. So we know that John Mark had a lot of exposure, not just to the church, but to the powerful workings of God. We know that John Mark not only had exposure to the powerful workings of God, but he understood that there was a price to pay for following Christ because they were praying for Peter, who had literally been arrested and was in prison. So so we know that John Mark had an an understanding of these things, yet we see in Acts 13, 13, as they're on this first journey, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and went home. He returned to Jerusalem. Now, in that specific passage, that's pretty much what it says. So if if we weren't reading beyond that, it was kind of like, oh, cool, John Mark decided to go home. That's fine. But in today's passage, in Acts 15, we see there were a lot of emotions and feelings behind John Mark going home. And, And Paul did not appreciate that. Most likely, John Mark was persuaded by the things of the world. We know that Paul said a lot about perseverance and and pushing through things. And, and John Mark decided to bail and go home. So that's John Mark. Maybe this morning you would kind of identify with, with John Mark. So that, that's kind of the stories, uh, the characters in the story. We see this conflict happen. But then what happened after the conflict? And I think this is important to this passage too, because we actually see some reconciliation. 2 Timothy 4, 9 to 11 Do your best to come to me soon. So this is Paul writing to Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Hey, look, here's another guy. Fell in love with the world and deserted Paul. So John Mark wasn't the first. So here's Demas. He's he's bailed on him. Christens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me. For ministry. So John Mark had been restored and had his trust with Paul restored to the point that Paul actually asks for Mark to come and join him in this mission. And I think that reflects the ministry of Barnabas, that, that Barnabas was able to be patient and walk with John Mark and help find restoration and reconciliation and develop trust again between Paul and John Mark. So the story ends good. There's reconciliation from Acts uh, chapter 15. So what are some applications of this um, passage? Now, we don't really see from Acts 15. It doesn't tell us, you know, Paul was wrong, Barnabas was right, John Mark's dumb. It doesn't tell us any of that. It's just, it's a story. Um, and maybe a good piece of homework is for you to go and dig into the word and figure out who you think was, was right, right? Was, well, Paul was probably right because he was still pursuing the things that God put on his heart, and Barnabas was probably right because he was trying to restore, and, well, maybe Paul was wrong because he was, so you guys can kind of wrestle through that uh, in the word. It's pretty fun. But we don't have clarity on that from the text itself, but I do think there's some things we can pull out and learn from this story. Number one, conflict will happen in life and ministry. I know it's shocking to everyone in here. Conflict will happen in life and ministry. Probably most people in this room today have some sort of conflict happening in their life. And conflict even happens amongst church leaders. Why is that? So Chris, close your ears for a second. 
The reality is that even church leaders still struggle with their flesh. While we have been set free by Christ, we are not yet perfect in heaven. And we are to fight our flesh, and we are to fight sin, but at the same time, we are still bound by our flesh. And so our flesh can come up and emerge in a myriad of ways. Here's, here's one of the things that um, the Lord's been teaching me a lot lately that I think is, is helpful in this, but then even in a broader context. So if we look out in the world today, we see a whole lot of problems. I think everybody would agree with that. You just turn on the news and it's problem after problem. Everything is an existential crisis. The world's about to end every second of every day for all these massive, crazy problems that are out in the world. But where do those problems come from? So the, the roots of those problems are actually sin and lostness. So we see Genesis 1, God creates Adam and Eve. They have one rule, can't even obey one rule. Eve eats, takes to Adam, Adam eats. Sin enters the world. Now here's the reality. Sin and lostness have physical consequences. They have physical manifestations. How do we know this? Because the very first sons are Cain and Abel. And what happens? Cain loves Abel. Cain murders Abel. That is a direct consequence of sin and lostness. So as we're looking at all of these problems today, you can read a list in Romans 1. You can read all of the fleshly desires that emerge in us and in everyone in the world from sin. The reality is they are consequences of sin. Division, brokenness, abuse, all of the things that we see in the world today have their roots in lostness and sin. So it's not that there's these problems over here that we need these solutions to fix, and then there's lostness that we need the gospel to fix. It's that we need the gospel to get into the roots of people so that it impacts the rest of society. Lostness is the greatest problem. That means that the gospel is the only solution. There's, there's nothing else that has the power to impact the roots of the issues of today. Money does not have the power and authority to impact. Lostness. A great career, a great perfect family, none of those things have the power and authority to fix lostness. Politics does not have the power and authority to fix lostness. There's only one thing that has the power and authority to fix lostness. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he came and died on the cross, he shed his blood so that we would be saved. And that salvation also has fruits. And the fruits are what? Love, joy, peace, patience. Isn't that what the world is crying out for? Are actually the fruits of the Spirit? Yet what we are experiencing are the fruits of the flesh. But church, just to encourage you this morning, the answer to the fruits of the flesh can only be found in the power of the gospel. There is nothing else that will, that will get the, the fruit of the flesh. So this is where conflict comes from, even amongst believers. So the last application here is to fight hard for oneness 
and unity. Fight hard for oneness and unity. As I was uh, actually just in time with the Lord this morning, he reminded me of John 17. So I want to close here in, uh, in John 17. John 17 is, is Jesus' last prayer. So he's praying. Then he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to get captured, which would lead him to the cross. Okay? So this is Jesus' last prayer as he's communing with his Father. And he's praying for us. And I think it's important to see, like, what is Jesus praying? So let's start in uh, verse 8. So this is, again, Jesus talking to his Father. For I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. Man, that's awesome, guys. Jesus prays for us. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And what Jesus is communicating here is what I was just communicating to us. Jesus is no longer in the world. He's sitting at his Father's right hand, but we are still in the world, which means that sin and lostness and the fruits of the flesh impact each of us every day in a myriad of ways because we're still in the world. But he's left us in the world. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Now, he, he says it again down here. Let's, let's start in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's really cool. Jesus isn't just praying for me. He's praying for those that I'm going to go and share with. And actually, as this is written, I wasn't a believer yet. I wasn't alive yet. Like Jesus literally prayed for my salvation right here, your salvation right here in John 17. So be encouraged as you're sharing with people. Jesus already prayed for him. The glory that you have given me, in verse 22, me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. When we think of, of mission, we rightly think of going beyond, going outside of the church, interacting with lostness in your workplace, in your school place, being the hands and feet of Jesus and boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, but as we look here at Jesus' prayer, in 20, verse 22 of John 17, the glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? 
so that the world would know. So that the world would know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. As I, as I open the news and social media, I mean, there's so much division and bitterness and anger, frustration in the world today. I've yet to meet anybody that's like, oh, that's awesome. I love that stuff. Maybe there's some out there. I haven't met them yet. Now, it does actually, though, tease some things in our flesh. So we're, we're in a very crazy way attracted to that kind of stuff because it is gossip. It's, it's these things that, again, are wrapped up in our flesh that we fight with. But none of us enjoy the division and bitterness and relational fracturing. As I travel around Europe and many parts of the world, and even as we've been here in the U.S., what people are crying out for is oneness. They want to experience what it's like to have unity. But here's the thing. The only way that anyone can have unity is through the power of Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can that can have such a diverse group of people and bring them together as one. He alone has that power and authority. Why? Because he alone has the power and authority to convert us and change our flesh. There is not a prime minister, a dictator, or a president in this world that has the power to bring unity. They just don't have it. Because we're all in our flesh. And when our fleshes start to oppose each other, it creates division. Yet Jesus came that we would be one. And what I love about Acts 15 is that we see the diversity of personalities. We see the diversity even of the body represented in a microwave there. We see conflict happening. But then we see reconciliation. And so conflict's going to happen in the body. And maybe, maybe sometimes maybe you turn on the news and you read Twitter or Facebook or whatever other social media things out there today, and you even see fighting in the body of Christ. And it can bring a lot of confusion. It can bring a lot of confusion. Like, I thought they were supposed to, like, love Jesus, and I thought they were supposed to. So know that, number one, like, even leaders in the church are, are broken, just like we, we all are until we reach heaven. But also know that we should all strive to be one with Christ. Here, here's, the, here's what happens when we become one with Christ. It's revival. Because when we become one with Christ, what happens? I repent of my sin. I realize, man, I, I know that guy over there has got some issues, but, man, I've got a lot of issues in my own heart. And I repent of my sin. I get right with my Lord. And now what? I'm actually submitted completely to him. And then Carl, he, he realizes, oh, man, I am, I am broken. And I, I need to repent of my sin and my pride. And I need to submit myself before the Lord. And, and now all of a sudden, Carl is submitted before the Lord. 
And Chris, Chris is like, man, God's convicting me of my sin, my pride, my arrogance. And Father, forgive me. I repent. And guess what? Now Chris is, is submitted before the Lordship of Christ. And I'm different than Carl, and Carl's different than Chris, but now all three of us are submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And we can pursue truth, and we can pursue holiness, and we can pursue righteousness, and we can pursue the lostness in the world. Not because I'm trying to figure out how to work with Carl right, but because I've, I've gotten right with the Lord. That's how oneness in Christ works. That's how a diversity of gifts and personalities in a body can actually work together in Christ to be one. I believe that's what revival in the United States church will look like. Is submitting to the truth of Christ, submitting to the lordship of Christ, but instead of me focusing on everybody else's sins and problems, it's me realizing, oh man, like I'm a missionary that's leading the work in Europe. And I've got a lot of flesh that rises up in me. I need to get right with the Lord. So this morning is, is an opportunity for us, for you as a church body. Maybe you realize this morning, I can't be one with Christ because I've actually never confessed my sin. I've never made Jesus the Lord of my life. Maybe, maybe this morning that's you. And man, this morning would be a great opportunity to confess your sin and get right with the Lord. Maybe you're, you're here this morning and you realize, I have a lot against my brothers and sisters that I need to repent of. That starts with just repenting to the Lord. God, I'm sorry for these hard attitudes that I've had that don't reflect the fruits of the Spirit. Would you make me right with you? As you get right with the Lord, then going and asking forgiveness and making relationships right with your brother or sister. It's realizing, man, I'm, I, I need to battle my flesh. I need to get right with the Lord. I believe with all my heart, based on Scripture, that as the church of Jesus Christ seeks his face in that way, that we will see him move and the world will all of a sudden begin to see because that's what Jesus says in John 17. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one, no one, no one else. So as the worship team comes, I just ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want to give the, the Spirit of God who knows you intimately I just want to give him a minute to communicate to your heart. Maybe he would be convicting you or encouraging you or challenging you in some way. Would you take this next minute and just listen to what the, what the Spirit is saying?
Jesus, I repent this morning because the meditations of my heart are not always pleasing to you. Lord, the meditations of my heart too often are pointed in an ugly way towards my brothers and sisters. God, I'm sorry for that. Lord, would you make the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth pleasing to you? Jesus, thank you that your spirit is so kind and generous to us to challenge us where we need challenge, to convict us where we need conviction, but then to bring love and grace as we come and repent and get right with you. Jesus, we give you these next few minutes. Would you work in our hearts? God, would you redeem and restore relationships? God, would you bring healing to hearts? Jesus, help us to be one as you and the Father. The altars up here are open. If you sense the Lord leading you to come and, and bow before him, before our church body. Repenting of what he might be convicting you of.